Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this podcast series where we share conversations with colleagues exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice which I hope will be applicable for our medical practices. Last week we were joined by Professor Rodney Hicks, Dr. Michael Lee and Megan Rogers from the Peter McCullum Cancer Centre, all expert in managing neuroendocrine tumours and we began the conversation discussing the instances and symptoms of neuroendocrine tumours. Today we advance that conversation in the second part of this series and I'm so glad you can join me with this expert panel. We were talking about the investigations about the chromogranin and we were jumping more to the, the gatate or dotate uh, scan that you were discussing and how that can shine up in the stomach in relation to stimulation by PPIs because you get uh, a certain degree of gastrohyperplasia. To some extent, um, it really relates on on the, the clinical suspicion of where you think that the, a, a tumour is likely to be um, because there are, a, for example, a subgroup of patients who are at um, uh, hereditary risk of neuroendocrine tumours because of uh, multiple endocrine neoplasia syndrome. Uh, so they're known and, and they, they are often uh, investigated uh, regularly by uh, surveillance imaging. And they're a different group. Someone presenting with an insulinoma, you know it's going, you know, with hypoglycemia, you, once you've confirmed that they are having inappropriate secretion of insulin um, uh, by, by a fasting test, uh, you know that it's going to be in the pancreas. And so, uh, you know, dedicated anatomical imaging of the pancreas um, uh, by a, a contrast CT or, or endoscopic ultrasound uh, becomes the first sort of port of call. Uh, glucagonoma, again, which tends to present with a classic um, set of symptoms of, of skin rash, diabetes and, and diarrhoea. Um, so that, that there can be uh, clinical clues that allow you to make a specific diagnosis um, uh, uh, of, of a particular tumour. Um, and the, the investigation that's pertinent to that uh, is, um, you know, relatively uh, you know, clear cut. But uh, many of, as you know, we alluded to earlier, many of the, the symptoms are really relatively non-specific, and, and, and a blood test is a good way to go, liver function tests, chromogranin, um, uh, particularly if, if uh, in a patient who's not on, on um, proton pump inhibitors. You also have to be aware that, that, that um, both cardiac disease and renal impairment will increase chromogranin levels because yes. the, 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 um, uh, the glycoprotein doesn't get cleared from the blood. So, again, doing routine UNEs and, and making sure that, you know, the patient doesn't have cardiac disease, doesn't have uh, impaired renal function. And the cardiac disease is really, again, related to hypoperfusion uh, of the kidneys and, and generally those patients will have uh, impaired renal function with elevated creatinine level. But what about 5-HIAA measurements? Is that something we should be doing? Uh, would that be a helpful thing to have before patients will refer to you? Someone, someone who has uh, symptoms of, of significant diarrhoea and, and or flushing, uh, it's certainly worth doing. Uh, there are new tests like... Um, uh, uh, platelet serotonin levels, which are um, more convenient than, than carrying around a big bottle and yes. putting yeah. every bit of your wee into it uh, over a 24-hour period. Is, is that commercially available? I've never ordered that test, actually. Uh, it's platelet. starting to become available. I don't think it's reimbursed as yet. I think there's a few labs that are, that are starting to do it, but uh, but it is uh, a test that, that can be helpful uh, yeah. in, in, in some yeah. cases. So where we think serotonin is the, is the uh, peptide, 
then we're going to be doing 5-HA, yeah. IA. Yeah, and, and, okay. and sometimes testing for the specific uh, hormones as well, you know, yeah. uh, you know, gastrin levels. Uh, you know, that's something that we, we, we'll do if, if we're, we're strongly sufficient or a patient has a pancreatic lesion uh, yes. with neuroendocrine features, we, we will do specific testing of, of those hormones that are secreted uh, 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 in, in those um, particular cases. But um, in most cases, conventional um, uh, imaging with CT uh, or endoscopic ultrasound, uh, uh, the first port of call for, for, for evaluation of, of disease, uh, they can uh, you know, identify, and as I said, many of these patients are actually identified incidentally, and that's part of the reason yes. that we've seen yes. an increase in incidence. Yeah. In, in relation to further staging and imaging, so the, the, the PET scan isn't particularly helpful, I understand. Most of the lesions are FDG non-AVID. So it's a conversation I have, have regularly uh, about um, what, what I call lumpology. Uh, and this is not not being in any way derogatory against CT or MRI because they they detect lumps in organs in pancreas or liver yes. or bone. Um, and but many people think of molecular imaging in the same way that that, that that what's important is the sensitivity of the scan to detect lumps. Where in fact what we're doing in molecular imaging is complementary to the brilliant anatomical. Uh, definition that modern uh, CT and MRI uh, scanners can provide and ultrasound uh, in terms of defining the size, the location, the relationships of, of anatomical lesions. Um, what molecular imaging tells us is about the biological characteristics and because um, uh, tumours which are slowly growing need less metabolites to fuel the substrates to fuel their growth, they tend to use a, a relatively low amount of glucose, no more than normal tissues, whereas more rapidly growing cells need uh, increased substrates to support their growth and proliferation. And so they tend to use more glucose, and therefore the FTG PET scan that we use for most actively growing tumours tend to be either negative or only very mildly positive, and therefore use sensitivity to detect them. Uh, these low, lower-grade neuroendocrine tumours is, is compromised. Nevertheless, FDG-PET is incredibly useful for that uh, characteristic that Michael pointed to early in, the, in our discussion of differentiation. As tumours become more aggressive, more de-differentiated, more on the aggressive side of the spectrum, they tend to use more glucose, and that becomes prognostically significant and also allows us to select and monitor therapy. You know, in those very high-grade ones, we tend to use chemotherapy because they're actively growing. They're like yes. card-carrying cancers, and so therefore chemotherapy works yes. Um, yes. in those. And, and we can monitor that, select them on the basis of high FDG uptake and monitor the response to the treatment uh, by using FDG PET. So we, we certainly use that as a test, but not in a diagnostic set, not in the sense of detecting lumps. The lumpology paradigm works most, much better with gallium octreotate, which leverages a characteristic of differentiation of neuroendocrine cells, which is that they, uh, about 95% of them in terms of gastrointestinal neuroendocrine tumours, maybe about 60% of lung neuroendocrine tumours have a common off switch Almost all the cells have 
receptors on their surface which which turn them on that, that, that are specific to their function. They're, they're often taste and smell receptor-like uh, um, receptors on their surface that, that, that sample their, their microenvironment. So in the stomach, they look at acid. In the, in the duodenum, they look at protein levels and sugar levels, and they regulate uh, secondarily the secretion of insulin or glucagon or amylase and, and, and so forth from, from the stomach. So they, they, they've got specific on signals, but they, they need an off switch. And that off switch is the somatostatin receptor. It, it stops them um, you know, telling other cells what to do. Stop secreting acid. The food's gone. Stop uh, you know, producing insulin. There's no more sugar coming into the system. So it, it's an off switch. And, and that's used generically to control excess hormone secretions through cold somatostatin analogues, uh, octreotide um, in, uh, or lanreotide as long-acting preparations would suppress those. But also we use them uh, for both diagnosis and therapy of neuroendocrine tumours by um, radio labelling uh, the, uh, the analogue uh, with a radionuclide. So, and when I'm explaining it to patients, uh, the, the concept of theranostics is have a receptor which is like a, a key, uh, gives access to to, to the cell, uh, like, like a sorry, like a lock, um, a keyhole. Uh, the key is the somatostatin analog that, that needs to bind to that receptor to allow it to go into the cell. You have a key ring, which is the dota, which which you hang a dangly bit off, and that dangly bit is the, the radioactive chemical. In a diagnostic mm -hmm. sense, uh, it's, it's a, we tend to use gallium uh, uh, 68, which gives off rays that come out of the body, can be detected in a PET scanner, just like the rays from FDG for a standard PET scan, uh, that allows us to detect where those receptors are located in the body. Or we can hang off the same key ring a, 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 a radionuclide that gives off particles that can deliver internal radiation. That's so the PRRT treatment. That's PRRT, yeah. peptide receptor radionuclide therapy. The, uh, octreotate and octreotide are peptides, small proteins. They're the keys that bind to the, to the lock, the somatostatin receptor. Uh, so the peptide receptor, that's that part of it. Radionuclide is the dangly bit. And therapy stands for it, you know, uh, accounts for itself. And so uh, the unique aspect of theranostics, this uh, key um, uh, with, with varying dangly bits that allow either diagnosis or therapy, is the ability to image on a whole body scale the expression of a target uh, in the body. In, and uh, the gallium octreotate uh, scan, the gatate scan, because the parts that are interesting are the peptide mm. and the dangly bit, not the, not the key ring. And you know, I sort of get a little bit hot under the collar when people call them dota scans. You know, the least interesting part of your key ring is the, is the, uh, your keys is the key ring. It's the key it's and the key. dangly bit that give yes. it. Oh, that's very helpful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that works for all the the uh, neuroendocrine cells. As I said, in, 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 the, in the well-differentiated or the, 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 the low and intermediate-differentiated group, uh, in the gastrointestinal system, it's around 90 to 95% of them have that receptor. In the lungs, it's around 60%. So there's yeah. still 40% that don't have it. Mm. 
Fortunately, they actually have other receptors on them that we're, we're, we're discovering now, things like cholecystokine and two receptors, and we've got new agents are doing this. So that the whole area of serenostics is about getting a, a locksmith, uh, if you like, to, to tell us that there's, there's different keys that are needed for different um, uh, receptors on their surface. This is the new age of medicine, isn't it, Rod? It's just a, it's incredible understanding cell biology and understanding these receptors and being able to work them out when you can't see them. It's just I find this very, very interesting. It's just incredible. Well, it, it, it's a fascinating area That's... To, to be involved in because uh, with genomic characterization now uh, and some of the, the new techniques um, that we can actually assay a patient's individual tumour for the expression of various imageable targets. Uh, and we've got a, an international project that I'm involved in called the Targetome Project to actually start to look at this so that instead of non-specifically saying, oh, we use a GATATE scan in all our neuroendocrine tumours, actually say uh, in some cases we might use a gallium optreotate uh, scan, in some cases we might use a cholecystokinin 2, in some other cases we might use FTG, and other, so that we'll actually be able to select the appropriate imaging tool to both select and characterise the distribution of that target within the body. And unlike most cancer therapies where if there if there's any selection, it's done on the basis of a tiny biopsy and immunohistochemistry to say, oh, yes, that target is there or that mutation is there, you, you have no idea of whether that's universally expressed throughout the body or not. Um, and uh, in, uh, in Theranostics, um, we can do that on a whole body scale with PET, PET scanning. And so sometimes we'll see that there are some areas of the tumour that have the receptor and there are other areas that, that, that don't. And we can't target those, those secondary clones that may have lost that particular lock. Uh, and the key, you know, it has nothing to bind to and therefore we can't deliver therapy to those areas. And sometimes we need to combine chemotherapy with radionuclide therapy to get coverage of all the different subclones of disease. So it's, it's an incredibly exciting and unique uh, application of what we're now calling precision medicine. And it's also incredibly multidisciplinary uh, in, in terms of we engage with pathologists, with uh, uh, medical oncologists, uh, with endocrinologists, cardiologists, uh, gastroenterologists. It, it, it's, it's a fabulous area. Highly, highly specialised. I wonder with the PRIT, which I know you've been very involved with, how, how you use that therapy and not have normal cells uh, also destroyed by the radiation. Uh, it's, it's not specific, is it? You're not doing an intra-arterial embolisation of a metastatic mass in the liver. Uh, you know, sometimes we do. If there's a heavy load of, of activity in the in the um, in the liver, for example, we'll deliver it intra-arterially to minimise radiation exposure to normal organs. Uh, but um, uh, it's something that we worried about in the early days that the pituitary, the adrenals, the thyroid all have somatostatin receptors and were we going to damage them and yeah. leave people uh, you know, with a, an endocrine desert? What about just the normal, the normal apoid cells that are in through the yeah, heart? And, and the guts, you know, gives them the equivalent of Hirschsprung's disease, you know, which, which was a concern uh, in the early days of, of delivering this therapy. But what we found is that, uh, and this is both a strength and a weakness of the therapy, that non proliferative cells are incredibly resistant to the radiation we deliver and so we don't see hormonal dysfunction we don't see uh, involution of our endocrine organs despite the exposure to radiation uh, uh, we 
we only really kill actively dividing cells. And so that becomes the, the challenge with the very low-grade tumours, that a very small percentage of the cells are uh, proliferating at any given time and therefore they tend not to be killed either. And so we can stop them growing, we can stop them producing hormones, but we can't kill them. And so the, the treatments are often given in the first instance, in the very low-grade tumours, mainly to control the, the hormone-related symptoms, not to have an oncologic effect. As the tumours become more biologically aggressive, and this is something that you know, we've pioneered with our medical oncology uh, colleagues, as they become more aggressive, they actually the, the, the objective response rates are much higher, the regression rates and the tumour control. You know, And some of the patients... You know, we don't cure many patients, but the few patients that we think objectively we've cured with, with metastatic disease have tended to be the ones with the higher grade tumours who have a more, uh, where the, the treatment has an oncological basis rather than an endocrinological basis. Um, more aggressive tumours but more vulnerable. I, I think I, I read that it's lutetium, is, it, is that the... The isotope that you have. It's one of the dangly bits. One, yeah. one of the dangly bits you have made, it, is it Lucas Heights? And, and am I right that is this treatment PIRT, is that something that's now, is it compassionately administered or do we have this available throughout Australia? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we've just celebrated the 25th anniversary of PIRT at Peter Max, so it's not entirely a new therapy. Uh, <laughs> it's been around for a long time. It's sort of been an overnight success. But um, it, it, the rest of the world, I think, is waking up to the... Yeah. Uh, the, the utility of this and uh, largely came out of a uh, randomised control trial uh, called the NETA-1 trial, uh, which uh, demonstrated what we all, anyone who'd been using it for that long, knew that it was a highly effective therapy in, in, in controlling the growth of these tumours. Um, uh, and uh, uh, it's now uh, approved in many countries uh, around the world. It's become incredibly more expensive because it's been approved and, and owned by a company than it was uh, when it was used under uh, compassionate use uh, criteria. But um, it, it's it's starting to evolve, and I think you know the, the challenges are actually uh, getting uh, the medical profession, including oncologists, aligned to that concept that sometimes PRT is there to control hormone secretion. Because if a tumour is not growing quickly, you know, you can't do much to alter its biology other than stop it producing hormones which are causing symptoms. In, in other circumstances where it is growing and where mechanical problems uh, and uh, replacement of normal organs it becomes a cancer, a card-carrying cancer and needs oncologic control, um, and, uh, and and the objectives of therapy are different in those two two situations. But how you design a trial that that you know because we like to look at regression of tumor as a sign of response. And if the tumors don't shrink, you think the tumor hasn't done anything. But your chromogranin levels go down. The patients feel better. They start putting on weight. They produce less hormones. It's actually a, a benefit to those patients, and they often live much longer even though they don't progress because they have a slowly growing tumour or you've slowed it even further uh, to what it was. Uh, and, and so the benefits in the low end of the tumour are different to the benefits uh, in the high grade. So sometimes we treat with PRT small cell lung cancer and we get fantastic responses, you know, great shrinkage of tumour like Michael sees with chemotherapy. But the durability of that uh, response is much lower because the tumours, if you don't eradicate them, grow back quicker. And so we, we have uh, the challenge of the, the diverse biology uh, that, that exists in these tumors.
Rod, can you give us a sense? Suppose we have a patient that's diagnosed with uh, with a neuroendocrine tumour and it's already metastasized, and I, I realise this answer is probably going to vary depending on the sort of net we're talking about. But is there a rough survival time that we could have in our mind as as doctors in regard to what that patient's likely to experience? It, it, it's it's entirely related to the uh, the intrinsic biology, firstly, of the tumours. So the, we know that a G1 tumour, where 1% to 2% of the cells at any given time are proliferating, uh, the, um, uh, if you look at some of the registry data, uh, these patients will live from diagnosis around 10 to 20 years, uh, even without very effective therapies other than some anastatin analogues because they're so, so indolent in their, their nature. Uh, once you start getting up into the the high G3s, the, the poorly differentiated neuroendocrine carcinoma, survival is measured in weeks. So, so that's that's the first aspect. The, you know, the intrinsic biology gives markedly different natural history. And then secondary is how they respond to the treatments that, that are delivered to them. You know, um, uh, some, you know, a very small percentage of patients with small cell lung cancer with a combination of chemotherapy and radiotherapy can be cured. Um, but those who aren't cured die very rapidly. You know, they're, they're mainly dead within a year. Um, in the uh, even with widespread metastatic G1 small intestinal tumours, uh, typically patients without effective treatment other than, than some anastatin analogues, and even with it, you know, will often live for years uh, with their symptoms uh, that they've lived with them for years before the diagnosis. So uh, that that's the challenge of, of trying to to educate. Uh, both practitioners and patients about the, the, the you know the, the variability, and if they go on onto the internet, that they'll they'll hear stories about you know Steve Jobs or Aretha Franklin, and you know I think that that applies to them. You know both of them had quite aggressive um, uh, pancreatic neuroendocrine tumours, so you know they they um, uh, you know their 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 outlook was from the get go rather poor. Um, uh, but, it, but it, you know, it, it's a highly variable um, uh, situation, I think, uh, in these patients. I think as practitioners, we just have to be very aware of this diagnosis and be thinking about it and not just treating every single patient that comes in with, uh, with uh, from my perspective, from gastrointestinal symptoms or other symptoms that we might just fob off as being early asthma. We have to think a little bit beyond the, the square and that they may well have an NET and we should be starting to consider, as you say, a test for chromogranin and maybe in those that are appropriate 5-HIAA and then appropriate referral. Sorry, but, just, I'm, I'm going to have to yes, go, yeah, I'm afraid, sure. uh, Luke, I've got another off. meeting. But um, I'll just put on my hat as a director of uh, the Neuroendocrine Cancer Australia that yes. there are modules which have been developed uh, uh, for GP um, uh, information and training in neuroendocrine uh, tumours, which I think they'll find very helpful. Uh, and the, there's a very good website with information for patients um, with uh, uh, various um, brochures uh, on the disease and, and uh, it can be very helpful uh, for for patients navigating their way yes. with a new diagnosis and for GPs if you know because sometimes they will, won't have seen uh, these diseases ever in, 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 in their practice before and I remember when we had our first neuroendocrine fellow who was actually a, a trained endocrinologist he did spend two years training in endocrinology and his first day in in my clinic uh, he saw an insulinoma, a glucagonoma, <laughs> a somatostatinoma, and three or four carcinoid patients, which he'd never seen oh, in the oh. whole course of his training. And he was 
wow, <laughs> you know, these are stuff you read about in medical school and you never see. And you think that they're irrelevant. You know, here we have a clinic and, you know, Meg would see these patients and, and, and perhaps she can go into to, to talking about that with you. So, but Thank you so uh, much. You know, Rob, I, before you go, can I go ahead right. to talk about the biodistribution, the difference between the lighting up intensity with progression and the lack of correlation between the two? Do you care to comment on that quickly before you go if you have time? Um, the... Uh, Often the better differentiated it is, the more intense the uptake will be because it's simply uh, uh, reflecting the expression of the receptor on the surface of the cell. So well-differentiated cells have lots of receptors, so they look very intense. They'll get lots of radiation because of that if we, we use PRRT, but because they're not proliferating as much, they may not necessarily respond as well to that radiation, whereas uh, the poorer differentiated have less receptors, get less radiation, but are more responsive. Uh, so you have this uh, balancing uh, between uh, uptake in the tumour and uh, normal tissues, which defines the therapeutic index between efficacy and toxicity. Uh, but also uh, the second thing that comes in is the, the radiosensitivity of the tissues themselves. No, sorry, I was meaning more the difference between the lighting up more intensely on the uh, GATAC PET scan does not always equate to progression as we think with the FDG PET. Yeah, yeah, because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a function of differentiation so that the, the more intense ones uh, can be very indolent. And as you know, Michael, we will often see a GATAC scan which shows widespread metastatic disease and we'll just say, now we know where your disease is. We don't know what its biology is, but we assume that it's going to be very uh, slowly growing. We put the patients on some metastatin analogs, and we just image them again in six to nine months. Uh, you know, which in, in most cancers is sort of, you know, you know, why are you doing this? You know, the patient's got metastatic disease. You know, surely you should be treating them. And uh, because uh, we know that they're often indolent, we, we'll watch them. And as you know, we've got some patients who've been on somatostatin analogues for years without any objective evidence of growth. And we don't treat them if they're not secreting hormones. I guess it's more that, you know, uh, for a GP to see a FTG PET scan showing it's more intense uptake, they will say this is overt progression. But in a GATE scan, you could see from one scan to the next that the intensity of uptake could be completely different due to the receptor status and therefore just more intense uptake on the GATA scan doesn't equate to progression unless you have a size change or a symptom change in the patient. So yeah, or, 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 or a new yeah. lesion uh, appearing. Yeah. Uh, but as you know, if we do see FTG uptake, in, if, if, if it's a G2, you know, the intermediate grade and we see FTG uptake, we don't wait for them to grow. We know that they will and therefore we get on to treatment. Uh, and so it's really a highly personalised kind of treatment paradigm and really is precision medicine. So I'm just getting a, a, a message uh, you, you need to, to, <laughs> to move on. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Rodden Hicks. It's been a real honour meeting you and, and thank you for sharing those incredible pearls with us. Uh, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you, thank you Rod. Thank you. Well, while I still have you here, Megan, can I can I tackle you, Megan, on, sure. on, uh, on just... We, we sort of don't have a lot of extra time, I think, because we've, we've taken so much of your time. But you're, you're very involved in the patient-to-patient -patient care, in administering sure. uh, the somatostatin analogues. Can you tell us a little bit about that from, from the GP's perspective? What should the GP know about that? And can you talk a little bit then maybe also about 
the, the psychology of the patient, they've got a long, slow-growing tumour here. How, how do we sort of support them in that as, as practitioners? Sure. Well, I might start with that because yeah. I think, um, yeah, people newly diagnosed with necks have significant challenges, I think, to contend with. I was reading an, a good article recently where they talked about people describing a sense of being, you know, invisible, surrounded by the unfamiliar, you know, the terminology, diagnostics, treatment options, you know, just it's not like the common garden cancers that they may have some familiarity with. And I guess all people with a new cancer diagnosis have uncertainty to cope with. But I think there seems to be a greater sense of uncertainty in the rarer cancer setting. And I know we've had a side conversation about, you know, does NET still deserve that rarer cancer moniker? But we'll put that to one side. Um, I think hence the importance, as, as Rod alluded to, one of the, the first things I will do when I'm meeting all new patients, which, which I try to when I do psychosocial screening and early referral, but I'll make sure I introduce them to the idea of the Neuroendocrine Cancer Australia group that Rod made reference to that used to be called Unicorn Foundation. And I'll give them written their written booklet information, which is excellent. And um, I'll encourage people who are IT savvy or they, if they are, they've usually got family who are, to visit their website, which is really good. Sign up to their newsletter, which tells you about um, everything they're doing. And they do so much from fund research, lobby government, um, do webinars. They have a, a discussion group. I think it's like a closed Facebook group you know, for, for peer support. So, and as Rod said, now they're doing um, always something new, innovative, exciting, and modules for nurses and GPs. You know, how fantastic very helpful. to spread the word and, yeah. and get it out there. So, you know, I, when I meet people, I like to become then, offer them um, contact details to become a focal point of contact for, you know, ongoing issues with um, with symptoms, emotional issues, some psychosocial screening, I mean, is... Is their symptomatology interfering on their capacity to work? Um, do they have income protection? Are they going to lose their business? Um, you know, that type of stuff. Um, and also we rate nutrition uh, really highly in this hospital and we're wonderful, have a wonderful nutrition department that we have easy access for. And I find neuroendocrine patients are, are very interested in nutrition. The um, foundation has their own booklet and, you know, I think... Um, evidence would say that, that all people with NETS should have malnutrition screening. And I tend to refer everyone there straight away. And our dietitians um, are so good at uh, neuroendocrine because we have hundreds of patients here that someone in the department's even done a PhD. So they get um, great assessment, support and advice, which they appreciate. So everyone has a meeting with them and that can be ongoing if it's needed. And I'll also refer to, um, you know, psychology, if that's needed, so social workers I've alluded to. So in terms of the injection, um, Luke, and I know we don't have a lot of time, I actually don't give the injection. I guess the way we work at this this hospital is is that um, we you know, have an area where we, we send people to for the injection. So when um, the oncologist prescribes a somatostatin, analogue, um, we will usually do the first injection on site and then I'll tell the patients about their options moving forward. Um, there's, there's two drugs available on the market um, and the 
the companies that manufacture them both offer a support program. One will offer in-home, uh, they'll train the patient, train the carer. Uh, the other will offer will train patient carer or go to a GP practice and offer education and, and um, some support and training to the GP and or their practice nurse. And quite There's a lot of support yeah, available. Yeah. yeah, and quite recently, uh, within the last two years, oncologists have been able to prescribe um, these drugs, somatostatin analogues, with a community access code. So it means that they can take a script from Peter Mac and they can go to their local pharmacy. I always warn them they'll have to order it in, but that only takes two days. So they can get it locally. So it's just moving them further away from having to always come in to a public hospital once a month, which, you know, back in the day was, you know, mm. quite a burden for some people. Or, you know, if, if they didn't get, take the drug from our pharmacy, then they couldn't get it. It was high drama because they have to be refrigerated. So that's been um, a great practical initiative that supports the in-home supports from industry um, is that patients can have the drug dispensed by their local pharmacists. That's, that's extremely helpful. Mm. Look, I, I think I, I'd like to thank you, Megan mm. and Michael, very much. And I know Rod's had to go off to a meeting. I really appreciate what you all are doing at Peter Mac, and I think we're so lucky in Melbourne to have you all, and for spending so much time today to to discuss, I think, a very important subject in great detail. So I really appreciate uh, the, the support and assistance. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'd like to thank you for joining me in the conversation held today with Professor Rodney Hicks, Dr. Michael Lee and Megan Rogers from the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre on neuroendocrine tumours. It was a great honour to have such guests join me. I learnt a great deal about neuroendocrine cells, both in normal state and their disease states, and I really hope that this will be helpful for your medical practices. Uh, during the podcast series, we'll be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests, the discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only and reflect the opinions that gets interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and may be emailed to manager at geohealth.com.au.